1 through 10, we, we find these words. And I think that ought to be preluded a little bit by uh, something that I, I was reading a text this morning and thought maybe I should have uh, picked a little more of that text to read. So I'm going to go back and uh, we got it right. I don't have it right here. I lost my place. Second Corinthians 14, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10 together. But let me read uh, just a little bit before. That's not right, is it? Let's just read what's in the Scripture. We'll get there. <laughs> I wanted you to know that Paul has said in the previous verses that he didn't like to boast. He had to be pushed to boast. He had to be pushed to the point of, of declaring, in comparison, the things that God had done in his life in comparison with those who were tearing the church apart. And so he was being pushed by, by those who uh, had um, come in to destroy the works of God in the church. And he said, I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on about visions and revelations of our Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, only God knows. And I know that this man, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except my weaknesses. Even though I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one would think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with you, with the Lord, to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. This is the word of the Lord for us today. You may be seated. This passage, to me, is a transformative passage. I don't know about you, but all my life, I fall into that trap that every human being faces of trying to live up to expectations. And many of those expectations were in my own mind and my own thoughts. They weren't in other people. Though I think our parents sometimes put some on us, and I think my parents put some on me, for the good. But we grow up with the idea that we need to please people, we need to please ourselves, we need to reach a certain level. But the day you discover that your weakness is an opportunity for the power of God to rest on you, you get liberated. You get liberated in a way that 
only you will get because God's work is personalized. Paul's kind of saying that here. He was talking to a church in this passage uh, that had a lot of people in it who were boasting about their prowess, their education, their training, their backgrounds, who were coming in as Pharisees or teachers of the law who were experts, telling the church all about what they knew and how they needed to be listened to more than Paul, who was a little different from them. Paul, in, this, in, the, in the book, uh, in, the, in the Corinthians, and in the epistles, reveals himself more than probably any man except David. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but Paul is always revealing his own heart. He's always recognizing the human qualities he has and the inadequacies he has. And yet, there was no man used more than Paul. I was doing some reading last week on, on the Internet, and I came across a lot of interesting articles about Paul. One of them said Paul invented Christianity and how he had twisted the words uh, into the form that we now know them, and that the apostles, the apostolic church as existed then really didn't have it all together, but Paul brought it into being. Nothing could be truer, wrong, false than that. Nothing could be more true than this, that God uses common people, broken people, humbled people, people who struggle, people who have issues, people who, who are not meeting their own expectations or anyone else's. He uses that kind of people who, when they humble themselves to him, can experience the grace and power of God. I, uh, I've been fascinated with this topic for years. How can we as a church be empowered? How can I as an individual be of use to God? What is it that we do? Do we polish up uh, the exterior more? Do we do more exciting ministries and programs? Do we change things in the atmosphere so that we can create an atmosphere that is more appealing and more like the world? I remind you that the early church had none of that. They worshiped God wherever they could, first in homes, down in any little corner they could find. They found first in the temple, actually. They met in the temple for a while until they got run out. So they continued to meet wherever they could find it. And when they were persecuted, we all know the story of them worshiping in the catacombs, the places of the dead. They were not stopped because of uh, where they were, or how things looked, or how comfortable they were. And today in other parts of the world, in countries that are heavily persecuted, we find the most vibrant, uh, we are getting reports at least, on the most vibrant churches you'll ever find because people are desperate and helpless and needy and they depend on God and God has given grace and power for them to be agents of His in a very dark place. When we lose sight of that as a church, we lose sight of Jesus because that's where He is. He's not in the beautiful places just because they're beautiful. He'll come there too. He loves us to show devotion and appreciation and reverence in our cathedrals or whatever. But those are really there to be vehicles for us. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need all of it. All he needs of us is that sense of awe and helplessness. 
When I was a seminarian, and I went to school just down the road from the National Cathedral, and they were building that then, and still are doing some work on it. We had a debate in class about what a waste of money that cathedral was. It could, money could be taken and used for the poor. We could do works of goodness. And our teacher reminded us of a woman who came to Jesus with her ointment and broke open this expensive ointment and bathed Jesus' feet with her tears and rubbing this ointment in it and how Jesus had acknowledged that lavish act. It's important to be lavish toward God, for God is lavish toward us. I'm not putting down the fact that we can't have a beautiful structure or anything, but what is important is today in this place is you and me and the heart we bring to God in worship, in action, in anything we do. We have no boast here, supposedly. If we want the grace of God, we cannot boast in our own strength, our education, our background, our experiences. Though they're wonderful. I can tell you right now, you know, and I sometimes comment on these things, and there's nothing wrong with commenting on them, but don't boast in them as if they are possessions of yours. If you want to say anything about what God does, what you can do, speak of the things God has done for you, and other people will be blessed. That's what testimony really is. It's just say, this is something God's done for me, and I know he can do it for you. This is the thing, that, a beauty that I saw of God. You know, Paul had no problem talking about the things that were humbled and, and when he was in a humble state, and he actually gave glory to God. That was his purpose, to give glory to God. So here, and he's arguing with the church, who have these new leaders coming in to destroy his work, and he is telling them something. I have a lot more than you to boast. That's fact. Now, that doesn't sound very humble, does it? I have a lot more than you. But he put it and couched it in language here, you notice. I knew a man once who was taken up into the third heaven. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. We read the first passage this morning where he was stoned and left for dead. And it says, and then his disciples gathered around him. What do you think they were doing? Giving him artificial rest? Resuscitation? Well, perhaps. But they were praying. And it says there, the disciples gathered around him. He got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for dirt. They were, had been rejected, but he got up. And it's so matter-of-fact, the way it's stated here. He got up and went back into the city. And the next day, they went to the next place. When he writes us in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. I believe he's describing this incident for a moment of time he is near death or death experience was there. He said, I don't know anything about the details of this, whether it's in the body, the out of the body, whether it was, uh, only God knows the, the nature of this event. But I heard, or that man heard things that were inexpressible. And I won't boast about that. I will only be, if I did, I would be telling the truth. 
If I boasted about that, it would be telling the truth, but I won't boast of it because it's not about me. God spoke to me once as an example. When I was praying about this thorn in my flesh, and he said to me after I prayed the third time, my grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, he said, if I boast about anything, it will be in my weaknesses. Every outpouring of God's Spirit, and I've studied those over the years, revivals, reformations, movements, they fascinate me. They should fascinate all of us. Because we're in a time right now when we need a movement of God, a fresh movement, one beyond our powers to bring in. Because we certainly have tried with every methodology I know of. How many leadership conferences do we hear about pastors going to and leaders going to so they could improve their churches? How many surveys do we listen to? How many people come in and tell us how to bring about life change in our community? The life change in our community will take place always when God is given room in our hearts. And when we, with abandonment, abandon ourselves to Him and let Him express himself through us and on other. Now I stand before you here this morning as one who's probably recognized me as a person, as a dramatic guy. And you're not dramatic, some of you. And here's Daryl being dramatic. No, I'm being Daryl. It's the way I was made. Every word I sing I wanted to go through my heart and come out my mouth. Every word I profess, I want to go through the experience that makes that word real in my life so that when I speak it, I will speak deeper than the words and in my intellect. I will speak out of the being to you for deep calls to deep in the sound of your water spouts, noise of your water spouts. I want, and I think Paul want, and this is what I saw and where I got it, Paul wanted his people to receive what had been imparted in his deepest soul. He wanted, he wanted to experience Christ, to know Christ, to know the power of his sufferings. And so he accepted his sufferings, and he accepted his trial with this purpose, that God had a focused purpose for it, to bring him to his knees, and to a moment when weakness was there, and he could yield to that weakness and call on God, and God would use it. God didn't call us and use our abilities to change the world. He called us to be available and let him influence us in any place we are. If we allow him to work in us, every moment can be pregnant with some change. And I'm telling you, church, this is the thing I forget over and over. It's easy enough to remember when you've got to preach to people how dependent you are on God. Or when you find yourself in a crisis moment, how dependent you are on God. But it's the moment by moment, day by day thing in our lives where we miss the point that in our weakness, we don't try to impress. We just try to express, express Jesus in some fashion. I know all of you are clamoring to get to be noticed in your job. It's not always the Christians who get promoted, you know that. Not always the Christians who get acknowledged by society. 
which is jealous always of who we are. But I can say this, it's always the Christian who has the greater gift, the gift of influence, because the Holy Spirit can work in them. I was trying to focus this this morning. This is so big and so heavy in my life and heart. This is something that has so consumed me, and it's needed because I need to be consumed that I don't know how sometimes to say these things. But it comes back over and over and over. God has written this in my life. He said to me once, and before I ever read this scripture and understood it, your strength, this is the way he said to me, I believe, is my weakness. I can't work with your strength. That weakens my position with you. But your weakness is my strength. When I barely knew the scriptures, when I was struggling like you to find that key to life, that youthful thing we desire to be, you know, used of God, as we used to say it, he, he revealed that text to me, and then I read it in Paul. <laughs> I felt very privileged at that time. You know, Paul is another thing about Paul. Who was Paul? Well, he had every reason to boast, as he said, and he listed them. He could boast in his background. He could boast also in his sufferings. He had a long memory. He had a a seriously long memory. Listen to this. I mean, he just writes this off top of his head by inspiration, I'm sure. And maybe he did a little tally on a sheet. I don't know. He said, I was whipped Five different times with 39 lashes. He counted every one. He said, I was beaten with rods on three different times. I was pummeled with stones one time. That's why I think this is where he had his death experience. I was shipwrecked three times. I was adrift at sea one day and one night. I had frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirsty, cold and exposed, the pressure of anxiety for the churches daily. Here was a man who hated the gospel the early disciples were preaching. Here was a man who, in his zeal, that's an interesting thing, too. Where in the world did he get that zeal? Gamaliel was his teacher. Gamaliel, how do you say that? Gamaliel? Gamaliel, that's the way I say it. Gamaliel was his teacher. Gamaliel was known to be a seasoned and respected rabbi at that time. He was somewhat of a moderate. He said of the Christians, leave them alone. If they're If they're right, you can't stop it. And if they're wrong, God will judge it and stop it. That's Gamaliel's approach to the Christian movement within Judaism. And Paul, though, who was his student, should have listened to that lesson. He got up as a young man and says, I'm not going to take that. I'm going out here and kill these people. I'm going to stamp this thing out. And he set out to persecute the church. It's so unlikely in the human sense that a man like this will use so powerfully for the church. 
And what happened? Paul got knocked off his horse. I guess it was a horse, <laughs> donkey. Or maybe just, I forget, now it is on anything. But, you know, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is this. He had a moment when he was stopped dead in his tracks. He went blind. He heard a voice. And he wandered helplessly back to the home of a man in a street called Straight. And God sent a prophet by revelation to his side to pray for him, and he was healed. Most unlikely of persons to be called to do this work. He was a scholar. Scholarship gets in your way, you know that? Knowledge gets in your way if you're going to pursue Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be scholarly. You shouldn't study the Scriptures. But don't depend on that for your revelation. I had a friend tell me years ago, Paris Reedhead, who was touched a couple of times in a man, and he said, Daryl, I'm going to get this advice for you when you start out in this ministry. He said, preach what you don't know because it's true. But everything you preach, ask God to let you experience it so you can preach from experience. So it's reality to you. Well, no one can set out trying to make anything reality, but I'll tell you this. If you humble yourself before God, young people, a lot of you here, this is a key to life. If you humble yourself before God and call on Him, you'll begin to see how He is working in your life. You can affirm that and give thanks for that and praise for that, and it'll grow stronger and faith will grow stronger and stronger in your life because you will have accumulated a history of the works of God in your life. Not to be boasted about, boast in your weakness, that because you were weak, God was great. That's Paul's way, approaching things. He didn't go out to become the great apostle. He went out as an apostle, lately come, he said. And God used him because of his particular shape and form and preparation. He happened to speak about three languages that we know of. But that wasn't what made Paul Paul. What made Paul Paul was God, and he knew that. I like to say this everywhere I go. It's probably something that I've experienced, and because I've experienced it, it needs to be said, because that's the only thing I've got to offer. God can use the silliest things to win a soul. He can use, not every situation is dramatic, but sometimes they are. God is so loving of you and me that he knows our frame and our weaknesses. And he just invites himself to come into our house anyway. Behold, he stands at the door to knock. And he who opens the door, however ever humble the home is, he'll come in. And he'll eat the bread you offer. And he'll be near you and with you. That's who he is. For he who had every right to be equal with God humbled himself even down to the very bottom, to death on the cross. I left Sunday school this morning as we were reading Scripture. A good question was asked. Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I didn't stay for the answer, but I, 
I checked to see if it was this one. Why? Because he was the propitiation of our sins. In one cosmic moment, before all of the dark angels, before all of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ actually became despicable and unsightly to God, and God turned his back on him and was silent, because he who knew no sin became sin. And don't ask me how that happened. It happened. And it was that sinner, that sin, in spite of that sin, that Jesus, faithful to the end, said, Mahatha, into your hands I commend my spirit. His final words was a seal that he still held to the fact that though he did not feel him, he was there. He trusted himself. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And God raised him from the dead because of faithfulness in spite of the situation. That's central to the gospel. It's central to life. It's central to you where you are now. Put your trust in him. Bring your weaknesses. Make no apologies for them. Just confess them. Make no big, uh, big production of it. Just present yourself and invite him to come and take over. Paul turned everything in his life however dark and tragic it was, into a divinely focused trial. He saw nothing but God in his lowest moments. Why was he chosen? Because he learned the truth of life. Weakness. Accept his common weakness. We who speak of the sovereignty of God should really appreciate that. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord, several hundred years before Jesus ever brought this message to the fore again. Now Paul brought it forth. Paul said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of our Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And he says to the church, so death works in us, the apostles and the ministries, but life in you. Let me give you a humble story. When I was a boy, you know, old men think about boyhood a lot. When I was a boy, I got mixed up with some boys in the fourth grade. Oh, you know how it is in school. And they were, somebody brought some pornographic um, comic books to school. (laughs) And everybody was excited about pornographic, you know, pornographic comic book. Little things, ugly little things down, weren't that big. Men used to slip them around at work, you know, pass them around and giggle over them at work, I guess. But the boy got his daddy's pornographic comic strip and brought it to school. Everybody's laughing at it. Well, I thought, wow, 
I can get some laughs here too. Always open for a laugh. So I started drawing little pictures. Teacher came down the aisle. She said to somebody, what's that? Little girl gave it to the teacher. She looked at her, eyes went big. She said, who did this? Everybody in class pointed to me. Did you do this? Yes, ma'am. I want to see you in the bell room. And that was a place of uh, confrontation. It was the judgment hall. So I went around and recessed to the, judge, to the bell room. I still remember standing in there, and I have this teacher standing on me. And she looked like the proverbial harsh, hawk-nosed teacher, you know, to me. She looks down and says, I'm disappointed in you. I'll tell you what. I would send you to the principal's office, but I'm going to give you a break. I want you to go home and show this to your mom and dad and tell me what they do. Okay. So on the way home, somebody dared to tease me about my newfound task, and I threw the paper away. And I puffed up my chest, and I'm not going to do that. I'll just lie. And I lied the next day. But you know what? Justice has it. Life-changing time in my life, my little old four-year, fourth-grade life. My mom found some stuff I had done in my notebook looking over my homework. Called me in. And the harshness I thought I was going to experience now became tears. My mom wept. My life was changed. My mom had no answers for that except sorrow. And God has no beginning with us in power to show his sorrow and what it cost him. And when we see that, it changes us. And when people see our human part, they will be changed too in any light we bring. Be more acceptable to receive it because Everybody's looking for the truth, what's authentic, what's real. And I wish for all of the church in America that we would come to a place where we're desperate enough for God not to make an event out of it, but just to make an action out of it. And let God bring in those whom he will save to be the people of God, Dependent on him. And I can tell you the moment I leave this place, I will be tested on what I've just said to you, I know. But I'll get up and go again, as Paul did over and over. The lessons of truth are easily forgotten. But when you've experienced them, you get a little stronger to resist them, the falsehoods. Let us pray. We bless you, Lord, for your goodness and presence with us. We ask today that you turn this place into a testimony for Jesus. That where we go and what we do just be so natural 
in the community and in the places we go, that a witness coming out of our mouth will be heard because it rings true to the heart of people. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a part in your kingdom. And now we come to this table, which you have spread for us, so invitational, so inviting, so open. In his name, receive our worship. Amen.